Let's uh, open up with a word of prayer this morning. Lord, thank you for being our good, good Father. Thank you for all you've done in our lives, the blessings, the, the life that you've given us. And although it may be hard sometimes, Lord, we give you the glory. Because even in those trials and hardships, they're molding us and shaping us. You want us to see you through all that mess. And Lord, I pray for anybody here that's struggling in that way, that they, they, they may see you and just hold on to you for strength, that you will comfort them, Lord. Right now, we ask that you fill us, fill this room with your Holy Spirit, that we may receive your word, that it may be implanted deep into our hearts, Lord. There's a message here for everybody, Lord, and may you use me again to speak your truth boldly, unashamedly, Lord. Thank you again for this time, Lord. Speak to us this morning. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So a little girl was talking to your teacher about whales. And this is what the teacher said. It's physically impossible for a whale to swallow a human because, though it's a very large mammal, its throat is very small. The little girl responded, Jonah was swallowed by a whale. The irritated teacher reiterated that the whale cannot swallow a human. It was physically impossible. The little girl responded back, well, uh, when I get to heaven, I will ask Jonah. And the teacher said, what if Jonah went to hell? The little girl said back, then you can ask him. <laughs> I mentioned that little short story again because um, we're going to be in this book. As I was finishing 1 Corinthians, um, I was asking the Lord to, to lead me in the right direction. What book we should begin next? Um, we do, as you, many of you know, we, when we cover a whole entire book, we cover it chapter, uh, verse by verse and chapter by chapter. And um, I really felt that the Lord was leading me here with the book of Jonah. I think there are many truths that we can um, discover here, that we can learn here, that the Lord wants to show each and every single one of us. Um, so although those stories... Um, are great and maybe you have already learned uh, a lot from this book and have it memorized maybe in the back of your mind um, uh, really just pay attention to what maybe the Lord wants it to maybe there's a new message in here something new that the Lord wants to speak to you about and uh, and yeah so I'm looking forward to uh, teaching this book and and I hope that you can make it uh, as, or you can keep coming as I, as I go through it. So for the next few weeks, we'll be spending time unpacking this book. And I believe that as we do, you'll gain some uh, insight about the nature and character of God. I also have no doubt that the Lord will also teach you some valuable lessons that you can learn and apply in your own life. This book, gives us a brief glimpse of the life of Jonah, the wrong way prophet who ran from God and was swallowed by a fish. 
Throughout the book, we see evidence of God, God's grace, and His love for all people. Now, now what I've decided to do with our time together this morning is just to spend, some, spend the, this week giving you a thorough, as much of a thorough introduction on this book as I possibly can. Uh, that way, when we begin verse 1 next week, you'll have a good understanding of what this book is really about. So let me begin by sharing with you some of the background, the setting, um, some general information about this book. Now, let's look at the author and date. Now, generally, because this book doesn't explicitly state its author, Jonah is often considered an anonymous written book. The traditional view, though, is that it was written by Jonah himself around the 8th century BC. This traditional view is based on Jonah's personal psalm from the belly of the great fish in chapter 2. There the words are written in the first person, I, me, my. Now the fact that the other three chapters about Jonah um, use the third person, such as he, him, his, it doesn't necessarily mean or doesn't necessarily rule out his authorship. You see, he may have chosen to write this way as a personal preference, or even someone may have uh, been getting the information directly from Jonah. Uh, in the Old Testament, there are instances where um, other authors sometimes wrote in the third person. For example, Moses, Samuel, Isaiah, and Daniel. In Hebrew, Jonah's name means dove. And according to verse 1, Jonah was the son of Amittai, and his name means uh, true to God in Hebrew. In 2 Kings 14.25, we learn that his home was in Gath-Hefer, in the territory of Zebulun in northern Israel. The reference from 2 Kings 14.25 also connects him with the reign of Jeroboam, king, Jeroboam II, king of Israel, who reigned from 793 to 753 BC, thus placing Jonah in the generation of Elisha and immediately, and immediately prior to the beginning of the great era of prophecy that began with Amos, Hosea, and Isaiah. Now, without getting too much into detail about the historical background in which this book was written, I just mentioned, I'll just mention some, a few important facts. The reign of Jeroboam II achieved unparalleled prosperity in the northern kingdom of Israel. Assyria was in a stage of weakness and was preoccupied with internal security. And Egypt, Egypt's power continued to decline. Jeroboam was therefore free to expand his borders with the our uh, Arameans as Israel's only hindrance. This background is important because it shows that Israel at the time was near the top, not the bottom, of the realm of international politics. As Assyria grew and expanded, it became hated. It became hated because of its cruelty. Now, if their archaeological inscriptions are to, believe, are to be believed, they flayed their enemies alive, made heaps of their skulls, 
and did some really awful, horrible things. Things that you would see in crazy horror movies. The haughty and blasphemous words of Rabshakeh, the Assyrian spokesman of Sennacherib, Sennacherib are recorded in 2 Kings 18.19. Now according to 2 Kings 15.29, Tiglath-Pileser III threatened Israel, captured and deported some of the population. Now again, excuse, uh, this is just a history. If you're a history buff, maybe you'll enjoy this. I, I, I enjoy history, so for me, this, this, this stuff was fascinating. Um, so yeah, he captured and deported some of the population. 2 Kings 18.10 tells us uh, that Shalamanser, Shalamanser V sacked Samaria and that Sargon II finished the job in 722 BC leading to what we call now the 10 lost tribes of Israel. At that time, Sargon II enslaved 27,290 Israelites, according to his record. Second Kings 19 records that Sennacherib, who moved the capital of Assyria to Nineveh, besieged the people of Jerusalem. However, Yahweh delivered them miraculously. Although the surrounding towns and villages fell and were plundered. Now given this historical context, the prophet Jonah was really in a difficult situation. You see, God asked him to go to his cultural enemies and proclaim judgment in their capital city. He was asked to risk his life preaching and had no guarantee that he would not, like other unwelcome prophets, be killed. Yet, he was also aware that if he succeeded in his mission and they repented, he would be considered a person non grata in Israel. So as you can tell, Jonah was caught between a rock and a hard place. And in this situation, many would likely choose a third option which was just simply running away. Now, those are some of the details of um, uh, historical details. Now, let me pull back a little bit and just give you a more broader view of the historical setting in which this book was written. As a prophet to the 10 northern tribes of Israel, Jonah shares a background and setting with Amos, the prophet Amos. The nation in enjoyed a time of relative peace and prosperity. Both Syria and Assyria were weak, allowing Jeroboam II to enlarge the northern borders of Israel to where they had been in the days of David and Solomon. Spiritually, though, it was a time of poverty. Religion was ritualistic and increasingly idolatrous, and justice became perverted. Peacetime and wealth had made her bankrupt spiritually, morally, morally and ethically. However, rather than um, direct Jonah to prophesy to his own people, God commissioned him to the Assyrian capital of Nineveh. Jonah is the only one among the prophets whose prophecy does not consist of what he said, but rather of his own life and experience. His experience portrays the past, present, and future 
of the nation of the nation of Israel as follows Jonah like Israel was intended to be a witness of God to the Gentiles Jonah like Israel became jealous that a message of grace should be extended to the Gentiles Jonah like Israel was thrown into the sea which is a metaphorically the Gentile world and swallowed up by the nations yet not assimilated by them Jonah and lastly Jonah like Israel was cast upon dry land again restored to the dry land of Israel and made a blessing to the nations the only part of his experience that does not seem to fit with with what uh, does not seem to fit is with what is found in chapter 4 nowhere in the Bible is it ever suggested that Israel will pout and sulk when when um, millennial blessings flow out to the Gentiles so let's look at now at the themes and purposes of this book the overall theme of the book of Jonah is about God's sovereignty now sovereignty for those who may not know means that God as the ruler of the universe is free and has the right to do whatever he wants he is not bound by or limited by the dictates of his created beings further he is in complete control over everything that happens on earth God's will is the final cause of all things in this book we'll get a picture of how God is sovereign over his creation and over the nations of the world we'll also see God's sovereign right to bestow gracious acts of compassion on whomever he wills so with the overall theme being God's sovereignty here are three other themes that will be covered throughout this book firstly God's grace mercy and compassion we'll see how he has merciful love for all people for everybody and desires them to come to repentance secondly God's anger towards sin and wickedness we'll, we'll be reading about also about Jonah's anger Jonah's own anger towards God for not being angry enough about the right things and thirdly the futility of running from God Jonah's decision to flee from God from God's calling is a warning to us that running from God is futile and only invites unnecessary hardship now it appears that the writer had at least three purposes in mind when he wrote this book first he wanted to emphasize Yahweh's concern for all mankind God reserves the sovereign right to extend his compassion to save not just Israel but the wicked as well as well second God's compassion and clemency were not weaknesses in God's justice but were better justice than human justice you see Jonah's personal experiences taught him that his own purposeful rebellion as well as Nineveh's ignorance or ignorant rebellion both required 
God's intervention. Thirdly, Jonah wanted to demonstrate to Israel that if the Ninevites were capable of repentance and, and receiving forgiveness, then, then so was God's elect nation. The goal of encouraging national repentance was relevant given the fact that the Assyrians would eventually conquer and sack Israel in 722 BC. Now let's look at the message and the relevance here. The message of this book primarily deals with a serious, a serious subject that hardly anybody wants to talk about. God's role in the persistence of evil in the world. Through the example of Nineveh, the book of Jonah offers an explanation. Like Nineveh, the Lord's anger at Israel's disobedience and rebellion will ultimately lead him to push them with a destruction and exile. And just like God had called Jonah, he would call and use the prophets from among them to warn Israel that of Judah's coming judgment. You see, although a judgment had already been pronounced and, was, and God's judgments are irrevocable, the warnings from these prophets were intended to bring about national repentance. And even though their doom was inevitable, the hope was that, like the Ninevites, Israel's repentance would bring mercy and God's judgment would be postponed. Not that it would stop or that it would end, but just postponed. If it had worked in the pagan and wicked city of Nineveh, why not among God's people? The message of Jonah is therefore this. God delights in responding to small steps in the right directions, in the right direction with gracious acts of compassion. After all, a smaller step than the one taken by the Ninevites could hardly be imagined. Yet God's response was overwhelmingly merciful. Now, let's look at Jesus, or Jonah in the New Testament. Jonah was one of only four prophets Jesus mentioned by name during his earthly ministry. The others were Isaiah, Daniel, and Zechariah. But Jonah received more than a mere mention. Jesus actually identified himself with the prophet's three-day so sojourn in the belly of the great fish, noting it as a foreshadowing of his own death, when Jesus would spend three days in the heart of the earth before his resurrection. Jesus' identification with the prophet at the lowest po point of Jonah's life echoes in the book of Hebrews. There, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, it teaches that Jesus had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he can become a merciful and faithful high priest. The book of Jonah stands as an important prophetic, in the important prophetic chain, giving readers a glimpse of Christ's death 
and resurrection hundreds of years before they actually occur occurred. Now in addition, Jesus employed the repentance of the Ninevites to rebuke the, Pharise the Pharisees, thereby illustrating the hardness of their hearts and their unwillingness to repent. The heathen city of Nineveh repented at the preaching, at the preaching of a reluctant prophet. Unfortunately, sadly, the Pharisees wouldn't repent at the preaching of the greatest prophets, the greatest prophet of all time, in spite of overwhelming evidence that he was actually their Messiah. So what are some of the main lessons that we'll learn here and, and that hopefully you'll be able to apply as we study this Old Testament book during the next few weeks? Well, let me begin by first sharing with you the an overall general lesson I believe we can all learn here. Although the book of Jonah is an indictment against Israel's cultural arrogance and tribal narcissism, those attitudes aren't just something that were just limited to that time and that place. It was a reoccurring issue in Israel's history throughout their entire history. And this is also an issue Christians have been wrestling with ever since, ever since the church started to grow and expand. If you guys remember, and we spoke about this before, churches at the time were very small, very simple, maybe the size of what we have here. But as it grew and as it grew bigger, you know, I guess we can call it politics, it got in the way, money got in the way, it just, you know, and then pretty soon it, there was just a bunch of corrupt people that were leading the church, a lot of the churches there. You see, God's people always run the risk of becoming so internally focused that we lose sight of the plight of the lost. We're told in 1 John 3, 17 and 18, if anyone has the world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need, but withholds compassion for him, how does God's love reside in him? Little children, excuse me, little children, let us not love in word or speech, but in action and in truth. Therefore, if, you want, if we want to avoid becoming or growing into a church that is arrogant and self-consumed, we must have a missional heart. Meaning we must make an intentional effort to try and reach the lost with the good news of Jesus Christ, not just around the world, but also in our communities, in our workplaces, in our schools, wherever it may be. Now, that's the general lesson that I see that we can learn. But here are some other lessons I think that we can apply, learn and apply from the book of Jonah. Lesson one, there is no limit to what God can do to get one's attention. For Jonah, it took being swallowed by a large fish. For me, it took 
the loss of my career and my family. Now for some of you, he may have grabbed your attention in some other dramatic way. You see, because God knows each and every one of us so well, he knows exactly how to shake us in order for us, in order to grab our full and undivided attention. Many, like myself, will snap out of it and with God's help do what's necessary to make their way back to the narrow road that leads to life. Sadly, though, others choose to stubbornly remain in that wide road that's full of, that's, it's just full of pain and misery and that the Bible tells us will inevitably lead to death and destruction. Lesson two, failure does not disqualify a person from God's service. Let me explain. Even though Jonah had blown it, God still used him to fulfill his purpose. Don't allow the shame of your failures to define who God created you to be and what he wants to do in and through your life. C.S. Lewis in the screw tape letters vividly describes Satan's strategy. He gets Christians to become preoccupied with their failures. From then on, the battle is on. Remember, Peter failed miserably when he denied Jesus three times. But what do we see happening after Jesus rose when he was just sitting with him during um, a meal? Jesus redeemed him completely after Peter had just laid out his heart before the Lord. When we do fail, we must remember what Jesus said to Peter before his failure. Jesus said this in Luke 20, 22, 32. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when you have turned back, when you turn back to the Lord, when you turn back to me, strengthen your brothers. Peter was going to sin miserably, but Jesus had prayed for him. Jesus' prayer was stronger than Peter's sin, and it's stronger than our sin too. Hebrews 7.25 says, He is able to save completely those who come to God through him, since, he's, since he always lives to intercede for them. Peter's failure did not define him, and ours should not define us either. They are horrible, humbling stumbles along the path of following Jesus, who paid for them all on the cross. And Jesus specializes in transforming failures into rocks of strength for his church. Now let me make this important point. Should, for example, a pastor who has committed moral failure return to the pulpit and lead a church in the same capacity as before? No, I don't believe so. The Bible makes it clear that moral failure disqualifies them from that position 
but that doesn't mean they're permanently disqualified from being used by God. This story in Jonah, of Jonah will serve as an example of how even after failure, anyone can still be used by God to achieve his will and his purpose. King David wrote in Psalm 40, verses 2 and 3, he, speaking of God, brought me up from a desolate pit, out of the muddy clay, and set my feet on a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and hear, and they will trust in the Lord. Lesson three, disobedience to God creates turmoil in the life of a believer. You'll see throughout this book how much Jonah suffered because he chose to purposely disobey God. If he suffered because he disobeyed, it shouldn't shock us when we find ourselves also suffering in a similar way for intentionally disobeying God. Proverbs 14.14 14 says, The disloyal one will get what his conduct deserves, and a good one what his deeds deserves. Even if a believer isn't experiencing ex the ex external consequences of sin or disobedience, inwardly, if you're a true born-again believer, you'll be experiencing the turmoil of conviction. Charles Spurgeon said, remember that if you're a child of God, you will never be happy in sin. You are spoiled for the world, the flesh, and the devil. When you were regenerated, there was put in, into you a vital principle, which can never be content to dwell in a dead world. You will have to come back if indeed you belong to the family. Lesson four, I like this one. Patriotism should never stand between a believer and God's plan. Jonah's patriotism blinded him from seeing the world around him as God sees it. And the same can happen to Christians when country comes before God. If you, if all of us, want to be an effective witness of the saving gospel of Jesus Christ, you must be willing to lay aside anything that, is, that may hinder that message. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 through 4, I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those who are in authority, so that we may lead tranquil and, and a quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good, and it pleases God our Savior, who wants, again, let me emphasize, everyone to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. As a believer, it ought to be your desire to be known for your faith, your love, and your obedience than as a citizen of a country you pledge your allegiance to. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9 tells us, 
You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that it's wrong to be a patriot. In fact, I would consider myself a patriot. I served my country in the Marine Corps. I risked my life in combat. And I continue to serve this great country by protecting our border every single night while everyone is sleeping. And I will always defend the divine rights we've been given under our Constitution. Like many others, I will stand in and place my hand on my heart during the Pledge of Allegiance and when the national anthem is played. And there have been times even that I've shed some tears because how beautiful and wonderful and what it means to me and what this country means to me. Why? Because I have the special love, a special love for this country that I was born in. <clears throat> However, in spite of that, the truth is that the Bible tells us that we're all just strangers, pilgrims, and exiles on this earth, and that our citizenship is in heaven. Now, since this is what God, the Word of God says, I believe it, and I stand by it. So, although I may, I may bleed red, white, and blue, and I may bleed American while I am alive and while I live, my soul looks forward to an eternal kingdom that I will one day call home. Therefore, whatever form of patriotism, whatever form of patriotism uh, your form or your patriotism takes, let it be with a deep sense that we are more closely bound to our brothers and, and sisters in Christ in other countries and in other cultures than we are to our closest unbelieving compatriot. God is our king no, and no man. His kingdom is our final allegiance. And lesson five, it's impossible to succeed in running from God. As we'll see Jonah, as we'll see with Jonah, <clears throat> when our desires pull us away from God's desires, we somehow convince ourselves that running from him is better than just, it's easier than just fighting him. However, God still manages to dole out a heavy dose of humility on a prideful and unwilling heart to show us that running is just as futile as fighting him. Job, you guys know Job. He tells us that God frustrates the schemes of the crafty so that they achieve no success. You see, no matter how far you think you've run from God, you'll never, ever be able to hide from him. Now, I want you to read, and, well, I want you to turn to Psalm 139. I want you to, if you can, if you have Bibles with you, turn to Psalm 139. 
Now listen carefully to uh, the words King David wrote in verses 1 through 16. Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I stand up. You understand my thoughts from far away. You observe my travels and my rest. You are aware of all my ways before a word is on my tongue. You know all about it, Lord. You have encircled me with and have placed your hand on me. This wondrous knowledge is beyond me. It is lofty. I am unable to reach it. Where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, Sheol, you are there. If I live in the eastern horizon or settle at the western limits, even there your hand will lead me. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night shines like the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. For it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wonderfully made. Your works are wondrous, and I know this very well. My bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret. When I was formed in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. You see, David knew he couldn't hide. No matter where he went, God was going to be there. And knowing this again, we should see that it's impossible. It's just impossible to run from him. We may try. We may think and believe that we are faster than him, or we can I mean, think of Adam and Eve. What happened when they, when they fell? They also tried to run and hide. But God, he knew where they were, but he was like, Adam, Eve, where, where are you? You know, when that happens and the Lord is caught up to you, or the Lord is there and you're ready he will be there with his arms extended waiting for you to just take him back you don't have to run from him and when you do again all you gotta do is just ask him Lord I'm sorry I'm sorry for trying to run please forgive me and he will he will forgive you and he will embrace you and take you back. Now, as I begin to close, I want to answer a question you may be asking. What is the book of Jonah about? Well, let me first tell you what it's not about. It's not simply about a great fish, which is mentioned four, only four times, or a great city named nine times here in this book or even a disobedient prophet mentioned 18 times. The book of Jonah is about God. God is mentioned almost 40 times 
in this four short chapters. And if you eliminated him from the book, this, this whole story wouldn't make any sense. The book of Jonah is about how, is about the will of God and how we respond to it. It's also about the love of God and how we share it with others. Our task as Christians is to be the, be the means by which God tells the world of the offer and to rejoice in the salvation of others. This is an experience that God wants us to share with him. We shouldn't be jealous or resentful when those who come to Christ in the last minute, in last minute conversions, or who come through, or who come through to God through circumstances um, dissimilar to our own. No. Instead, we ought to rejoice in the fact that God has saved yet another person from spending eternity in hell. Our desire is that all men should be saved, even our worst enemies, even the worst. You know, if you have a hatred towards a certain political person, even, th even them, they deserve God's mercy and love. You shouldn't desire them to, to spend eternity in hell. I know sometimes it may cross our minds, but, you know, really, uh, God does love them still. And we ought to love them as well and want the best for them, want them to be saved. Again, that should be our desire for all men to be saved. Therefore, heed. I ask all of you to heed the call of Paul in 2 Timothy 4.2. Preach the word. Be ready, be ready in season and out of season. Rebuke, correct, and encourage with great patience and teaching. Again, we're going to cover a lot of things here in this book. I know four chapters, four short chapters. But there are many lessons. There may be some lessons here I, that we're going to read about that maybe I just didn't even cover. And as I said in the beginning, there may be a message particularly for you that the Lord wants to show you and reveal to you. So we got to be open to that. We can't just look at this book and say, oh, I've read Jonah a million times. It's, I, it's no biggie. I, I don't mind skipping here and there. Man, I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to studying it, to sharing it with you, and to seeing and hearing what the Lord has taught you and, and showed you. I'm sure that as we went through 1 Corinthians, maybe that occurred too. Maybe Corinthians was a book that you've read a hundred times. But I know that even after studying it and sharing it and rereading re it, God showed me so many new things through that book. Jonah's a great story. And we're going to be seeing Christ. We're going to be seeing ourselves in this story and Man, I hope that God just really speaks to you through it. 
Let's close with a word of prayer. Lord Heavenly Father, wow, you're so amazing and good and wonderful. Lord, you created, when we think about how great you are, that this universe that you created, all the galaxies, and just even all the microbes, all the atoms that were created by your hand, Lord, we just stand amazed and in awe that through all that, you love us. And that you chose to send your son to die on the cross for our sins. That you, even though we were a disobedient people, even though we sinned against you, you still chose to send your son to die for us. We are humbled by that and we are so thankful, Lord. If there's anyone watching or listening and, and you want to receive the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, and you believe that, and you know that you're a sinner that needs repentance, and wherever you're at, just ask you, I ask you that just bow your heads, close your eyes, and pray the simple prayer in your heart. With all sincerity, pray this. Heavenly Father, I know that I'm a sinner and have fallen short of your glory. I ask you now that you forgive me of my sins. Lord, I believe that Jesus, your son, died on the cross for my sins. And that all my sins have been placed on him. Lord, I turn back. And I want to follow you now. I believe he is God. I believe he is Lord. So fill me now with your Holy Spirit, Lord. Just make me new, Lord. I receive it. I accept it. Help me to walk according to your ways the rest of my life. I pray this in Jesus' name. Lord, um, Again, bless us next week. Bless everyone here. Um, bless their families, Lord. Keep them safe as they go about their daily lives and their jobs at school and at home. Or may, we, may we be lights and salts in our community and wherever you may take us. Thank you again for being our Lord and our God. Bless this next time of fellowship, Lord. We love you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.